Hey guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Cake Wallet. If you didn't get a chance to see the YouTube interview I did uh, very recently with Justin and Skylant from Cake Wallet, go check it out. They've added so many more things to do now. You've always been able to obviously hold your Litecoin and swap in there. But you know, in the past year, they've added Cake Pay, which allows you to spend your uh, Litecoin basically anywhere you go. Uh, a new incorporation with this app called Trocador, which allows you to invoice and uh, request specific amounts when you're sending out your QR code. And uh, what was the other thing they had? Uh, oh, Bird Pay. That's the other one. So if you go into my pinned tweet, I have a uh, I have my address, my Litecoin address. Actually, I think it's in my bio. And uh, you can just, in Cake Wallet, send at Litecoin Underground. You don't need to type in an address or anything. It'll go find it. <clears throat> so it's kind of a cool feature. Um, you don't have to give me any money. If you want to send me a couple Litoshis just for fun, knock yourself out. But, uh, yeah, so check this out. I did a little something different this time, and I actually would like to do some more of these. I like this idea of a shorter episode. I'm just going to be taking one of Charlie's writings and uh, just reading it and maybe a little analysis in there. So I'll try to do more. It won't all be Charlie. It might be some economic stuff. <clears throat> anyway, thanks as always for listening, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Hey, everybody. I'm going to try something different today. Um, I've been thinking about doing some writing of my own to kind of cover some some basic topics that... Uh, maybe sometimes I don't do a really good job of really summing them up, right? <clears throat> and so I thought uh, as a startup, as a test to see how this goes and if it's something that's worth doing in the future, I'm going to take some writing of other people and just put them on a podcast. So I guess blatant appropriation of their words. Uh, and what better place to start than with Charlie Lee, right? So... um this is an article he wrote. Uh, it's on Medium, uh, December 15th, 2015, called Eating the Bitcoin Cake. Um, and I'm just going to read it. So anytime I say I, it's Charlie writing. <laughs> All right, here we go. I first discovered Bitcoin in early 2011. Like many, I thought it was brilliant. Bitcoin transactions were decentralized, secure, fast, cheap, and unlimited. Decentralized. Thousands of nodes verify and relay all Bitcoin transactions. Secure. The Bitcoin network was secured by millions of dollars of hardware. They're fast. Confirmations are fast. Zero confirmation transactions are very safe as double spend attacks are impractical. Cheap. You pay little to no fees. Your transactions will all get mined in the next block. Unlimited. At that time, Bitcoin block sizes were tiny compared to, block, to the block size limit. Transactions being delayed due to the block size constraint was unheard of, so there was effectively no limit on transaction throughput. The reason why this was the, is the case is due to the brilliant design of Satoshi Nakamoto. Bitcoin is bootstrapped like a startup. Equity is paid to the employees initially until the company can make enough money to start paying higher salaries and less equity. In the case of Bitcoin, Mining block rewards pay for the cost of the distributed network initially and slowly transition to have users of Bitcoin pay for that cost. And like a startup, Bitcoin miners are invested in the success of Bitcoin. 
Essentially, early Bitcoin users get the cake and eat it too. Unfortunately, this won't last. By design, the block rewards halves. The block reward halves every four years and will trend towards zero. As that happens, we will have to choose which of these five core Bitcoin features, decentralized, secure, fast, cheap, and unlimited, which of those five are we most willing to sacrifice? I'll use an analogy to paint the picture for why this is the case. The Satoshi Castle. King Satoshi built a castle for his peasants. He decides to pay 50 gold pieces a day to hire soldiers to protect his castle and the peasants. Since he does not have unlimited wealth, the plan is to cut the subsidy by half every four years. So starting in year five, he'll only pay 25 gold pieces a day. After about 100 years, he will no longer pay any subsidy for the soldiers. The idea is that the peasants will start to appreciate living in this secure castle, and they will be willing to eventually pay for these soldiers. Satoshi's castle's security is so good that a lot of peasants from other castles have started to move to Satoshi Castle. King Satoshi is a very welcoming king and lets everyone in. Everything is well and good until one day the castle started to get crowded and can no longer fit all the peasants that want in. What is King Satoshi to do? He can, one, expand the size of the castle and welcome everyone, or two, start charging taxes on the peasants to pay for the soldiers. The tax will make it so that poor peasants cannot afford to live in Satoshi Castle. Of course, none of the peasants want to start paying taxes, and they want Satoshi Castle to stay being the utopia that it was. So the vocal majority is in support of expanding the castle boundaries. Ignoring his own unease, Satoshi decided to listen to the peasants and to double the size of the castle every two years. As time went on, the problem starts to become apparent. The larger the castle gets, more powerful soldiers are needed to protect the castle if they want to maintain the same level of security. As King Satoshi's subsidies started to decrease, some level of taxation became inevitable. But the poor peasants can only afford very little, and rich peasants weren't willing to pay more than the poor ones. Not being paid enough, the soldiers start to quit. This left the castle vulnerable to attacks. One day, soldiers from Yellen Castle, which is obviously a reference to Janet Yellen, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm editorializing here Charlie's words, soldiers from Yellen Castle came and stormed Satoshi Castle and destroyed it. As you can see from this analogy, increasing the block size limit, or the size of the castle, instead of increasing taxes or transaction fees, will result in the soldiers or the miners in this case, quitting, and a decrease in security. Now, this was related to BIP 101, okay? Early Bitcoin users are spoiled. Having used a decentralized, secure, fast, cheap, and unlimited network for a few years, they're not willing to concede on any of these five features. Most of these early Bitcoin users don't understand how and why Bitcoin works. You cannot have the most secure network being highly decentralized and still get huge transaction throughput, fast transactions, and low fees. Something has to give. In the case of Visa, you're giving up decentralization and cheap, but you get fast, secure, and unlimited. That's not a bad trade-off, but that's also not Bitcoin. Running a centralized system is much more efficient and cheaper than the total cost of a decentralized system. If Bitcoin has 5,000 nodes, the cost of a Bitcoin transaction will be something along the lines of 5,000 times that of a Visa transaction. 
That's just the nature of decentralization. The cost is multiplied since each node has to do the same work as every other node. Mining block rewards is paying for that cost today. As mining block rewards trend towards zero, transaction fees will need to pay for this cost. People think that a solution like BIP 101 will work, but I think BIP 101 is too dangerous. As shown by the castle analogy, BIP 101 is valuing cheap and unlimited over secure and decentralized. I'm going to just take a little sidebar here and go give you an idea of what BIP 101 is, okay? Now, this was, again, pre the block size war. Again, this is Grant talking. This is not in the article. <laughs> so essentially what BIP 101 is, by the way, a BIP is BIP, Bitcoin Improvement Proposal, um, was BIP 101 was introduced and essentially what they were calling for was for the block size to double every two years, which, you know, if this had happened back in 2015, we'd be at two, four, six, or I'm sorry, two, four, eight, 16, we'd already be at 32 megabyte blocks. So it was enacted in one of the hard forks, Bitcoin XT, but obviously not in Bitcoin core. All right, just a little sidebar for that. So back to the article. People think the solution like BIP 101 will work, but I think BIP 101 is too dangerous. As shown by the Castle analogy, BIP 101 is valuing cheap and unlimited over secure and decentralized. BIP 101 has no effect on FAST, but as one can see from the replace by fee proposals, FAST won't last long. BIP 101 increases the block size too quickly. This will destroy any chance of a fee pressure due to supply constraint. So in order to keep high throughput and low fees, Security and decentralization will be destroyed eventually. This would happen because miners will create large blocks that are not economical for the network to bear. This forces other miners to leave since they will be unprofitable. So security and decentralization will be gone as block rewards decreases. What happened to Dogecoin will happen to Bitcoin, and merge mining will not be there to rescue Bitcoin in this case. This is not the Bitcoin I signed up for. So marginal cost of transaction is the heading of the next paragraph. Okay, so if we have a large number of transactions, each paying some fees, can those fees add up to be enough to pay for the miners to secure the network? Unfortunately, no. The Bitcoin network is a zero-sum system at equilibrium. The transaction fees plus the mining block rewards must pay, must be able to pay for the total cost of running the Bitcoin network. When block rewards are at zero, the transaction fees must pay for it all. The design of Bitcoin is that one miner receives the transaction fee, but every miner must pay the cost to relay, verify, and store the transaction. This imbalanced cost-slash-reward relationship is what prevents Bitcoin from staying secure and decentralized at equilibrium if there was no transaction supply constraint. As an example, let's say there are 5,000 miners slash nodes and the marginal cost to process a transaction for a miner verify it add it to a block and store it is one one hundredth of a penny okay so the marginal i'm going to repeat that as an example there are five thousand miners and the marginal cost to process a transaction is one one hundredth of a penny the total cost on the entire network is roughly five thousand times that one thousandth of a penny or 50 cents 
the average transaction fees need to be 50 cents in order for this network to be sustainable. If the fees were less, less efficient miners will not be able to make more than their cost and will be forced to shut down their miners and quit. This leads to less security and more centralization. A little sidebar I want to mention. This article was written in 2015 when the price of Bitcoin was, you know, I could probably find out exactly. Uh, December of 2015. Should I go look? Why don't I go look? Come with me on a live. This is like a live stream podcast. You have to entertain my uh, sidebars here. The reason I want to look is I want to get an idea of when Charlie talks about 50 cents per transaction, what he was mentioning securing at the time. What was the price of Bitcoin um, and how much would be required to secure it? So at the time, roughly, the price of Bitcoin was $400, just to give you an idea. And the supply would have been, oh, I don't even know at that point in time, maybe $13 million or something like that. So obviously a much smaller, well, here, I can even tell you the market cap. God bless the internet. Give you everything. Uh, market cap was about what Litecoin is today. $6.8 billion. Actually, that's really interesting. Eight years ago, eight and a half years, or seven and a half years ago, the market cap was almost the same. Interesting. Okay, back to eating the Bitcoin cake. The only way to ensure that the transaction fee is enough to pay for the security and decentralization is have is to have block size limit act as a supply constraint for transactions. Without a small enough block size limit, miners will mine transactions that have transaction fees more than their marginal cost, but less than the total cost the network has to bear. It's interesting. I'm going to repeat that again. Without a small enough block size limit, miners will mine transactions that have transaction fees more than their marginal cost, but less than the total cost the network has to bear. For example, let's look at a transaction that paid a penny in fees. Since it only costs the miner a thousandth of a penny to add it, of course he will mine that transaction. But that transaction is uneconomical for the whole network. When mined, it will hurt the network. In contrast, if there was a block size limit, miners can only mine transactions paying the most fees. And that ensures a healthy equilibrium between transaction throughput and transaction fees. In the end, we're just trying to figure out which dials to tweak to help Bitcoin grow. The block size limit dial should be tweaked with extreme caution, as it could destroy the security and decentralization of Bitcoin. This is I, I, I like where he's going with this, and what is actually surprising to me, again, this is me editorializing a bit here, uh, is I think what he's saying is empty blocks are a bad thing, right? You don't want um, fully empty blocks because then miners will just take whatever and people will get used to less than reasonable fees or less than economically viable fees. Um, and it's interesting because we've seen the block size limit increase because of Litecoin. It's an increase, right? It's four times. MWeb is an increase, but also one that isn't set in stone as far as when will MWeb uh, expand, it'll only expand when demand, when we start seeing full blocks, which I think is a is the right way to go about things. You don't need to expand the block size until you reach the upper limit. Okay, back to the article. Bitcoin is not one size fits all. I contend that we should design Bitcoin for security 
and decentralization above all else. Transactions that need the highest security and decentralization will need to pay the higher transaction fees required to use the Bitcoin network. Not all transaction fees can afford this. Not all transactions can afford this fee. But then they likely don't need the security and decentralization, and that's perfectly fine. They can use Litecoin and altcoins, sidechains, payment channels, Lightning networks, off-blockchain networks, and other yet-to-be-created networks to send those transactions. Heck, they can still use Visa if merchants are willing to pay the fees. You would use Bitcoin to buy a house or a car. A 60-minute wait and a $1 fee for an extremely secure, decentralized, and irreversible transaction is perfectly fine. If you're buying a coffee and need a cheap but fast transaction, but don't care about security or decentralization, you can use Litecoin, Lightning Networks, sidechains, or even Starbucks off-blockchain transactions. As long as everything is seamless, users don't care. Transactions will be routed to the payment network that makes the most sense based on the needs of that transaction type. Technologies like on-chain swaps, Lightning Networks, payment channels, and sidechains will allow seamless and cheap-slash-free conversions between Bitcoin and everything else. Wallets will hide all the complexity from their users. We're not there yet, but that future is very exciting. Not every transaction will be native Bitcoin transactions, but every person will use Bitcoin. P.S. I'm the creator of Litecoin. Although some people think that it's a conflict of interest, I don't. Before I created Litecoin, I knew that Bitcoin's transaction fees will eventually price out a lot of smaller purchases, so I created Litecoin to complement it. And that's that's it. It's a pretty, pretty brief reading. So it'll be a briefer episode. Um, what I gather from this is that... Uh, I mean, you know, I talk about the culture and the, the ideology behind Litecoin, um, and I think it all starts with Charlie. And I think Charlie right here acknowledges, you know, um, the number one thing that Bitcoin achieved is a secure decentralized network. And sacrificing that in in some sort of uh, desire to make it more all-consuming as an asset was never worth it. So doing things like second layers are always going to be preferred to potentially sacrificing those incredibly unique properties that Bitcoin has as far as being so secure and decentralized. And even I think he even acknowledges a bit that there's a little bit of a trade-off when you go into something like Litecoin because there is more block space, the blocks aren't as full, um, so, you know, we don't have quite as many miners on Litecoin as, as there are on Bitcoin. And certainly back in 2015, there weren't nearly the uh, as much mining or allocation resources to Litecoin as there is today. So Litecoin here sitting at the same market cap Bitcoin was when he wrote this is actually probably interesting timing. So, all right. If you like this, um, I don't know how you can communicate that to me. I guess... Give it a review. Give the podcast a review. I haven't really asked for that very much. I would like to do more of these, some shorter episodes, just some think pieces for you guys to kind of put in your brain and think about. And uh, I thought this was a really good one. So Charlie has written a few things on Medium.com. I'll probably do another one coming up. Uh, He talks about his vision for the Lightning Network and all that. But anyway, thanks again, guys. I appreciate you guys always listening. And I'll see you soon. Have a good week.